Are you going to fill in, Bob? Is that the, is that the plan? All righty, let's go ahead and start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Let's acknowledge that you are the creator of all things and that you are our redeemer. You came to rescue us from the powers of Satan, sin, and death, and we just say thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would help us today to learn from your word. God, and that you would just really implant a lot of hope in, in us and all of us who need it. I know that's everyone. I know different ones of us feel it in different ways, but we all need your hope. So would you just help everyone to experience that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this summer we've been doing our series answering questions that you guys asked, or for the most part, you guys asked. We've been trying to spend the summer finding, or at least seeking, God's answers to some of the hard questions that life has. And today I'm going to ask one of my own questions. So, I really want you to know that I'm preaching to myself today, here, a lot. So please know that. I need to hear this. But I know that's a relevant question to you, and I know that many of us in this church have dealt with it because it surrounds the issue of suffering. And I know that a lot of you have suffered a lot, a lot more than I have. A lot of physical pain in here, a lot of relational pain, death of loved ones, death of kids. You've all dealt with consequences of your own sin, and I've dealt with mine. Some of us have mental illnesses. Some of us have experienced sexual abuse. And recently in this past year or so, among the elders and their families, it just seems like that there has been a concentrated amount of various kinds of hardships. And so all of us have had to ask and somehow to answer this question, what do we do when life sucks? And I really don't just try to say that casually to be funny, but sometimes it really feels like it does. And that's pretty much the adequate word. But if you prefer the edited version, you know, what, what do we do when life is hard? What do we do when life is hard and difficult? And so what I hope to do is to give seven to-dos that will help you in hard times. And not all of these will resonate with you, probably. But my prayer has been that at least one does, especially the last one. But that maybe God would use two of them. That there would just be two that for some reason would stick out and land and help you. But first, I want us to just kind of sit with that question for a second. What do you do? When life sucks, what do you do when life is hard? Like actually, practically, what do you do when that's happening? And just think about that for a second. What do you, what do you do with your body? What do you do with your, with your mind, with your heart, with your emotions? 
How do you how do you cope? How do you soothe yourself when life is hard? You cry, you get angry, upset. Do you talk to a friend? Do you cope with alcohol, with food, with entertainment? Do you dissociate from the pain? Just cut it off? Do you stuff it? Internalize it? And all of us probably do some of that in some ways, in some ways more than others. But first I want to lay the groundwork for this in in the Bible. One thing about the Bible that I love, and as I get older, I love it more, is that the sins and sufferings of its characters are all over the place. I mean, everywhere. The Bible is not PG rated. Life certainly isn't. The Bible says that life is hard because all of life is lived outside the garden. So that's the theological reason. That's the biblical reason. All of life is lived outside of the garden. So we all live outside the garden because of your sin and my sin. So the problem is us. It's inside of us. We all live life outside the garden because of other people's sin against you and against other people. We all live life outside the garden because of just suffering in this fallen world, that things decay and things die and things are flawed. And so every one of us, no matter how old we are, we just got to know we live life outside of the Garden of Eden. And we see what happens when sin, suffering, death, devil entered the world in those first chapters of Genesis. We see in the first marriage relationship, Adam and Eve, that the difficulties in marriage start right away. The conflict and the blaming. The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And that's real. Marriage can be hard. It starts with Adam and the curse that he gets and the toil and how work just doesn't seem to get better. It does for a while and then something breaks. And over and over again, toil and thorns and hardship. We see the curse upon the woman with childbearing and pain, suffering. Which obviously, if you've experienced in some way, I'm a guy, so not in the full way, but I've seen it, you know it's painful. But again, the picture is much bigger. The pain of having kids in a world like this and the challenges that they face. Their kids, and again, so you already have this going on in the marriage, you already have the blaming from the beginning, and you already have what's probably resonating in Eve's ear which is not the first part when Adam sees her and he sings, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and all that, just stunned. But it's probably this blame. Imagine having that echo in your heart for the rest of your life with him. 
but they're kids. One of them is a murderer. So Adam and Eve experienced the pain of one of their children killing one of their other children. We have Noah. Noah, God's man, God's chosen family, the ark, the rescue from wrath, the faith of Noah, building the ark. Everybody's against him. He builds it. He's blessed. Rainbows. Promises. Story ends with him naked and drunk in a tent. Story ends with one of his kids, and we're not exactly sure what went on there. Sees his father naked, and there's all kinds of theories about what exactly might or might not have taken place during that time. But then goes out and tells his brothers, says, hey, come on in, dad's dad's naked and drunk. Trying to shame him, to dishonor him. So they grab a garment and back up and put it over him. And he, of course, Ham, the curse of Ham. Job, all of his children swept away, die in one day. Not just one of them in one day, all of them. His wife doesn't handle his suffering well. Maybe for good reason or not, but we know that that's there. His friends don't deal with his grief well at all. They try to wish. They try to talk theology, talk about his own sin at a time when maybe they just need to be with him. His comforters are not comforters. So that's experience and relationship when he's going through hard times. Wife tough, friends tough, challenging, not going well. Lot, what the New Testament calls a righteous man. And again, you really got to think, I mean, these are people, these aren't just ideas, these aren't just principles. This is actually a person, Lot. He's a righteous man, he trusts God, lives in a wicked society, filled with what Ezekiel tells us is oppression of the poor, that kind of wickedness, and sexual sin, wickedness. Angels visit him and the men of the city look to gang rape the angels. He offers up his daughters to the men. Imagine dealing with that as a daughter. Later on, we hear in the story that his daughters get him drunk on different, at different times to sleep with him. So they get their dad drunk and they sleep with their dad in the Bible. And so, their kids, Moab and Ammon, or the Moabites and the Ammonites spring from them the great enemies of Israel. David, a man after God's own heart, chosen by God to rule his people. And we think about young David and getting chosen over the brothers and fighting off bears and writing songs and killing giants and all that stuff. And that's how life can be too. A lot of that. But he ends up serving a wicked, demon-possessed king. King ends up visiting a witch. King chases him for a long time tries to kill him. David lives in caves. Kind of Robin Hood character. He eventually takes the throne. People singing about him in the streets. 
And later he kills a man so that he can sleep with that man's wife. Or he at least sleeps with his wife first and then decides to kill him. He experiences the death of his son, of his child. Is that chapter in the Bible and the grief that accompanies it? And then their kids. His other son, Absalom, takes his kingdom away from him. His other son, Amnon, rapes Absalom's sister, Tamar. There's a chapter about that. So we can just kind of go through and you see, man, these things are, these are heavy. This is heavy stuff. I mean, this is heavy stuff, and this is in the Bible, and this is life. This is what it looks like. Our stories can be in these stories in different ways. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, you go to the New Testament. You have Paul, who's obviously persecuted ruthlessly, suffering for Christ. You see Paul forsaken by a bunch of his friends toward the end of his life. Everybody's kind of gone. He talks about how Demas, his buddy in ministry with him or whatever, has forsaken. Just says, I'm done. Not a Christian anymore. I'm going to go chase the world. We see that a lot. You hear of many leaders nowadays doing that. Many friends of ours, I can think about being, what, 40 and thinking about different friends going to church with. And they're done. They're done with Jesus. Paul experiencing that. Paul experiencing conflict with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And they separate and do different stuff for a while. Different ministry. Mary, blessed among women, bearer of the Messiah, but who's told by Simeon that a sword will pierce through her own soul. So she probably lost her husband Joseph. We see that at the cross. When Jesus speaks to John, take her into his home. So she probably suffered the loss of the spouse, Jesus suffering the loss of his earthly dad. And then she deals with her son going off when he's 12 to be about dad's business or talking in the temple and all that. She watches his son tortured and killed in front of her. I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, but that always struck me when Mary runs, runs toward Jesus. And she watches that. Peter, the up and down Peter, internally up and down all the time. Sounds a lot like me. He... Gets the identity of Jesus right. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, God's revealed this to you. Right after that, he gets Jesus' mission wrong. Like, no, you're not going to die on a cross. That's not the way to do it. It's not the way to triumph. It's not the way kingdoms come. He gets By faith, he sees Jesus walking on the water. He gets in. He's on the water. Boom, he falls. He's in the water. Jesus grabs him. He denies Jesus three times. He starts out by saying, I'm not going to deny you. He denies him three times. One verse about him cursing Jesus. Probably some salty language involved. And then Jesus restores them with three things at the end when they talk. Later, Holy Spirit comes. Bob alluded to it in the Sermon on Race. Cornelius, Gentile, some good bond. He sees the, the food. It's all clean. Jew and Gentile together. It's all good. He's kind of leading in that. And then later he gets it wrong. He sneaks away at the tables. He doesn't eat with the Gentiles. He goes over and sneaks with the Jews. Doesn't, doesn't want to offend them. Paul says, you have compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ by your actions. 
You've swayed in your practice and in your doctrine. So that's Peter. So again, all different kinds of stuff here. All different kinds of things showing us from the Bible that life is hard. So we shouldn't expect it to be any different. We don't mean that in some weird way to be rejoicing just in the suffering itself. But that's, those are the stories of the Bible. So, what do we do? What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? So the first thing I think that we should do, number one, is admit it. Say it. The worst thing to do is just to stuff it, to not admit it, to just act. That's all good. Life is great. Life is wonderful. Things are going really well when they're not. Sometimes they are, and that's, and that's great. There can be seasons, some of you guys may be in seasons that are just awesome. Best things ever happening. Best physical, spiritual, relational, whatever. It's, it's all good, and that is absolutely good. There's a lot in the Bible about that. But when it's not, you have to say it. You have to admit it. Psalm 88, one of the darkest psalms in the Bible. It's an entire psalm, and there's no hope, basically. There actually is, but when you read it, there isn't any. Psalm 88, and I I want us to ask, do you ever talk to God like that? Or do you just try to put it up to, I'm just Romans 8, 28 all all day long. It's all good. There's all kinds of wrestling with God in the prophets and in the Bible, all over the place. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry for my soul inside my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to sheol i'm counted among those who go down to the pit i'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves you have caused my companions to shun me You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. End. That in may not just be that the companions have become darkness, but there's a footnote probably that says darkness has become my only companion. You know what my friends are? You know what my companions are? Dark. And where are you, God, in this? So, you can actually do that with the stuff in your life. Now, there's hope in here. Because he is still doing it, and this is the key, he's still doing it in the context of his God. 
in his personal relationship with God. He's still crying out to you. But I'm going to cry out to you. I'm not seeing anything right now, but I'm still going to cry out to you. So admit it. What do you do when life is hard? You admit it. You say it. You say it to God. What do you do when life is hard? You admit it to another human being. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is going through a tough spot. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 to 6. And we're just going to kind of jump around. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, meaning fear on the outside, we're afraid of what's going on, and fear within, inside. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So we see how God uses the comfort of friendship and the comfort of other people to comfort us in our suffering. So, when life is hard, is there somebody that you go to? Face-to-face, person-to-person. Is there somebody that you talk to? Is there somebody that you can just say it to? Is there a friend? Is there a pastor? Is there a therapist? Counselor? Who do you talk to? There should be at least one person, hopefully more. But there needs to be one that you admit it to, and that you can actually be, be pretty raw with and just say, yeah, this is what's going on. This is what I'm dealing with. This is the hard stuff in my past or in my present or what I'm afraid of in the future. So number two, confess with confidence. Confess with confidence. Micah 7, 8 to 9. In this fallen world, it's not just things that are happening to us, but it's also things that we do because we're sinners, because we, we sin. Micah 7, 8-9 discusses that. If you don't know where Micah is, I can't think of it either right now, so be encouraged. There we go. Micah, not, not quite, close. Micah 7, 8 to 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So we have, he's acknowledging his sin before God. He is also Utterly hopeful in it. Don't rejoice, enemy. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to rise. God's going to bring me into the light. So confess with confidence. What can happen when we sin is we just get discouraged. We just get self-pitying. We just let discouragement and discouragement pile up over and over and over again. And discouragement itself can be a sin. Confession can be bold. Boldly go before the throne of grace with confidence. Again, not because of yourself, not whitewashing your sin. You're admitting it. I did this. Consequences are coming. But I'm hopeful. I'm encouraged. I can find joy. God is a redeemer. We can have false humility with our sin. There's an old Puritan who wrote a book called 
like the lifting up for the downcast or something like that. And he says, when a man is truly humbled, the more he is humbled for sin, the more he can rejoice in God. I don't know how humble I am. But the more a man discouraged, the less he rejoices in God. Another pastor by the name of Terry Burgo says it this way, to accept discouragement and allow it to shape your thinking is like embracing any sin. Refuse it, be ruthless, and put it to death. Do you think about your discouragement in that way? It's got to be killed. God is gracious. And so one of the worst to-dos when life sucks or when we're handling our our sin is to just be proudly self-righteous and ignore it. No big deal. Consequences aren't that big of a deal. My sin's no big deal. That's a lie. It is. But also, the other piece of it is to be proud in your self-pity and just to wallow in it and be discouraged over it. All of the time. That everybody knows and you stay stuck over and over and over and over and over again. I like to do that and it's sickening. Especially for people closest to me. So confess with confidence. Number three, enjoy the simple things. Enjoy the simple things. The everyday things. So one of the worst things we can do when life is hard is to just be a legalistic, rigid fundamentalist. Not helpful. It may seem like it for a while, but it can produce false righteousness. The New Testament is very severe against asceticism. But that can actually be a false teaching to try to control people and what they eat, what they drink. And Paul labels it with false teaching. And so Christians shouldn't just be ascetics, shouldn't just be people that, oh, we just withdraw from everything. We're just so disciplined and perfect. Well, for one, we're not. <laughs> that's, that's obviously not true. And then, and then for two, that's, that's not the way to be godly. So we're called to enjoy the simple things, and that's why books like Ecclesiastes are really important. Because it acknowledges life is really hard and vain, And sometimes just like worthless and feels meaningless. He says, enjoy God's gifts. And yes, he also says in all of those gifts, probably not going to go well, probably not going to end well. They can be abused and everything else. But God has given you gifts to enjoy. He's given you five W's. He's given you wine. He's given you wife. He's given you work. He's given you wealth. And he's given you whatever. And that's pretty much pretty much it. Ecclesiastes 5:18 to 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun a few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. He's not just self-conscious about himself living in the life, but he's just he's enjoying life. He's seeing that, hey, each of those things isn't the point of life, and it will become all kinds of addictions and evil and all kinds of other things if you make it the point of life, but that there are they are good gifts. Ecclesiastes nine, seven to ten. 
Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. I always love how he says that. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It, it, Life is vain. Life sucks. That's kind of the way it is. But just enjoy those gifts. I mean, isn't that how life kind of feels? Again, that the tension of both. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And again, the danger here when we separate, separate sacred and secular and we just treat like, oh, this is the important stuff right here, what we're doing right now. Yeah, actually, yeah, this is really important. But also so is just whatever you do with your hands later on today in the workshop or at the house or whatever. You can do it in such a way to honor and fear the Lord. So all those things, you can enjoy your wine, you can enjoy your wife, you can enjoy your work, you can enjoy your wealth. There's a verse in there that says money's the answer to everything. You can enjoy whatever. So enjoy the simple things. And just to put some nuance, yes, especially with um, the wine issue, there's some that should not. And that's okay. Shouldn't. Shouldn't enjoy it. Because they're easily mastered by it. And they should, and they should not. And they should be welcomed. And the ones who do, they should be welcomed. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So, quick nuance. Anyway, enjoy the simple things. Number four, um, fight sloth and gluttony. Fight sloth and gluttony with thankful eating and appropriate exercise. Those are kind of important words there. So I was thinking about this in that we, I mean, I I basically sit at a desk, sit down a lot. And in our society, we sit a lot. And and even just the way that technology and everything else, there can just be a lot of sitting. (laughs) And it can be easy. What can you do when you sit? Well, you can usually eat a lot. You can usually watch a lot of TV. You can, you can look at your smartphone a lot. There's a lot of things you can do when you sit that aren't always the best thing for you. Again, all those things can be a good gift. But they can also be something that can just reinforce, in a sense, the hardship of life because we try to find the hope there, and it actually just makes it worse. And even just forget the spiritual thing. It just makes you feel bad. But yet God, in his mercy, has given us a body to be used to enjoy thankful eating. So it isn't just about like waistline and diet and gluttony and that kind of stuff. Isn't isn't just about that. But it is a sin. It is a sin to overindulge, to just satisfy our cravings. We can be large this way. We can be skinny this way, and we can be a glutton. So it isn't just about you gotta just gotta diet, you know, or something like that. Actually, the New Testament again is more about. Um, God's given you food, eat it with a thankful heart. If somebody puts something in front of you, forget all the, don't worry about it. Eat it and be thankful for it. And again, in our overly conscious eating society, we can turn diet and exercise and all those things into an idol. We can pay too much attention to them. But when we are eating thankfully, not overindulging, we can do it in a grateful way. That can be a blessing to our lives. That can bless us when life is really hard. And in the Bible, there's all kinds of meals. Jesus was usually eating meals with people. And again, so you're having the social connection with a person. You're eating the meal. Your body's being satisfied. And there's a way in which we become whole and healthy by just those things. So eat thankfully. And then appropriate exercise. 
I say the word appropriate because, one, all of us are different ages in here. Two, all of us have different physical ailments and doctors say different things. So, again, nuance, nuance. But for the most part, when your body is moving in some way, if it's just maybe you need to stretch more, stretch more. That will probably help. If you need to walk a little bit, up and, hey, go on walks. If, if your body has been, if you have a good body and you're not doing it and you can't do a lot of that, maybe you should be running. Maybe you should up it. Maybe you should go to the gym. Those can be very spiritual things. Don't separate it. In 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he basically says godliness is the main value. But he does say that, yes, some value in bodily training. And again, that would have been a society that wasn't just around sitting all the time. And he still found some value in it. Yeah, it's valuable. No, it doesn't compare to godliness. You can be the fittest person of your life and you're still going to die. But there is some value there. And, and some of you need to know that. There's some value. So do it. God has given it to you. Do some appropriate exercise. That can be helpful. There's all kinds of research that shows endorphins, runner's high, whatever you want to call it. There's all kinds of stuff that shows how it can make you feel better. There was a um, Harvard study. Exercise is an all-natural treatment to fight depression. talks about how 1 in 10 adults in the U.S. struggle with a depression. Antidepressant medications are a common way to treat condition. However, pills aren't the only solution. And again, we've talked about it before. We, pills can be needed. We're not a church that's saying ignore that. Visit Paul's sermon, or Paul, close enough, Bob's sermon last week. But research shows that exercise is also an effective treatment. Exercising starts a biological cascade of events that results in many health benefits, such as protecting against heart disease and diabetes, improving sleep, lowering blood pressure. Then it just kind of goes on. So, when life is hard, it can be easy just to, you just don't want to do anything. And sometimes for darn good reason. And it's hard enough just to even get out of bed. Well, just try to get out then. Maybe that's the exercise for the day. So again, just think of a step step further. All right, um, number five, go outside. And this is connected. It's interesting how in the book of suffering in Job, so Job 38 to 41, the whole book of Job is about, again, what I mentioned him earlier, a guy who suffered a lot, whose life was extremely hard in horrendous ways. And when God comes to confront him, God is consistently constantly pointing him to nature. And there's some of the beautiful pictures in, in Job 38 to 41, the way that God confronts him. You know, who are you, Job? Like, have you looked at, you know, this beast or that beast or whatever? Have you just gazed at creation? You have things like Psalm 104. It starts out, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul. So the psalmist is telling his own soul, bless God. And then he talks about how God's just... Wondrous control and power in all the nation. And he gets specific. Talks about all different types of the beauties in nature. And again, in our society, it can be easy to just avoid all that. To again, we we can just stay inside. So one of the worst things you can do when life is hard is just stay inside and never go out. Try to at least go out. Maybe go out a lot. Uh, The Scientific American in 2019, which is this year, um, they just recently published some research, I think that was a while before, and, and, and this research can always change and all that. So, so we've so, um, we got to know that. But 
talked about how two hours a week. So I was thinking, okay, two hours a week. So divide that by seven or whatever, 17 minutes a day. But just try to go outside. And, and it talked about the research talked about how it can just, again, help you in very scientific ways of how it benefits your body or relationships or whatever. But, hey, it's just common sense. Common sense gifts that God has given. Go outside. Enjoy nature. Number six, don't give up. Or, again, positive if these are two do's. So be resilient. To use a popular psychological term right now. Be a resilient person. Or, again, a Christian term, endure. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Endure. And one of the worst things that we can do as Christians is have a false idea of blessing. Again, that life is just going to be easy and blessed and it's just all going to be good and rosy and that's what Jesus came to do. Not true. And our culture is becoming more and more focused on fragility and fragile, emotionally fragile people. Another recent book published was The Coddling of the American Mind by an NYU professor and by another researcher. And I was thinking to kind of put this in the, in, the, in the context of Christianity, that Christianity is not fragile. And what they argue in this book is basically that there are a lot of things right now that have treated kids and people and everything else very fragilely, which doesn't work. Because actually they need stressors and different things to actually just grow. The complex systems are a part of life. And some of the hardness of life is what makes you mature and grow and be a stronger, healthy person. And so Christianity is similar in that we are not to be offering just some that it's just like this God just going to treat you like a beautiful bunny, you know, or whatever, and pet you all the time. That like life is going to be hard sometimes. And that doesn't mean, and again, there's, we have to have levels here, because it doesn't mean that like, I mean, major traumas and things like that is not what these researchers or anybody else is talking about. Because there can be really hard things that can be utterly debilitating for good reason. But they're just natural that, hey, we are, God has given us as human beings, we naturally are supposed to thrive under certain kinds of pressure and stressors, and that that can make us whole. And again, in, <laughs> in the Bible, you have all kinds of that, obviously with a more spiritual context. But in James, which we read earlier, again, we're going to go back to James next, next week. In James, what we've been studying talks about joy in trials. And I was kind of struck by James 1 and the way in which it phrased it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And I was really struck by this phrase. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Oh, doesn't that just sound great? Let that steadfastness, let that endurance have its full effect. Like, I don't want to. I just want to give up and be done. I'm tired of this, Jesus. It says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, so that you may be whole. Go through the trial, endure it, count it joy, endure. It's going to produce something in you. 
Produce steadfastness and let it have its full effect. Keep on going. Keep on trusting Jesus in the hard things of life. That word steadfastness, capacity to confine, to bear up under difficult circumstances. That was one of the Greek spots that I found. Have the capacity to bear up under these difficult circumstances and that it's going to have its full effect and make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the book of Revelation, there's these pictures, and this is what we're going to hit for the last point, but it's kind of a continuation of this one. There's this picture all throughout the book of Revelation of conquering. So the one who conquers, God says, I'm going to do this. They give you a crown of life for all kinds of different symbols. You know, you eat from the tree of life and manna and names and all kinds of stuff in Revelation that makes us wonder. Um, but the point is, is there's this whole thing in Revelation about life in this world and the destiny of history is going to be full of really hard things, full of judgments from God for sin, full of persecution, full of... Um, the way for life to grow cold and our hearts to grow cold and want to turn away from Jesus. And there's this consistent call where John is trying to jolt people with these massive symbols out of their complacency and say, i got to keep going. i got to conquer. To the one who conquers, God is going to give this. So there's this theme of not giving up and enduring. And some of us need to hear that. It could be in very specific ways in our life, and it could just be with Jesus. Keep going. Keep trusting with Him. Look to conquer. You can do this in His strength. Revelation 1, 9. I love the way that John says it. I, I think it's kind of a definition of, the, of some of the conquering that he's talking about. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. So again, the tribulation. We, we have all different kinds of end time stuff that goes off. But again, just suffering partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Patient endurance in Jesus. That's a part of walking the way of Jesus. Patiently enduring all of this tribulation in life. And conquering. And in the letters to the seven churches, over and over and over again, towards the end, if you look, it'll say it. To the one who conquers, I'm going to do this. They'll usually warn them, and Jesus comes and rebukes all these churches, most of them. He just says, hey, but hey, keep going. He has a specific thing for them, and it's usually conquer. There's this sin, or there's this thing going on. Hey, but to the one who conquers, the one who continues, to the one who holds fast to Jesus, the conqueror, keep going. You're going to have life. So, to us, keep going. Don't give up. Endure. So, the last one, number seven. Worship the worthy one. Worship the worthy one. All of these different things, even, even that I mentioned, we can still kind of do very, very inwardly and very like self-helpy in a certain way. Very, very introspectively. But this one is the most important one because it's to take us out of ourselves. And so when life is hard, we are to worship the worthy one. 
Worship the one who is worthy. Revelation 5. There's this massive picture that John tells. And worthiness is brought up five different times. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So there's a scroll, there's seals, there's this longing for who is worthy to open this thing. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So again, we have this heavenly picture. All this symbolism going on, this longing, there's the scroll. What is the scroll? What are the seals? We know what the seals are because later talks about, I think in the next chapter, all these different judgments of God on the earth and all these different ways in which really bad things happen. Bad things. But there's also in the Bible this picture of books like people's names that are in books and people's names that aren't in books and that God is going to keep certain people. And then there's this picture of of all these judgments that are coming forth. And I was reading one commentator that was talking about how this is the this is the sovereign decree of history. The revelation is about this is how this is the way the world is going. And all this unbelievably hard stuff in the world, devil, angels and sin and death and all kinds of stuff that all of it is coming to a culmination point. And who in the world can hold this? One on the throne who is God. And then here is a lamb. A suffering lamb. So the one who holds all of this history of brokenness and frailty and that's going to move toward being utterly changed and renewed was won by one who was worthy. By the conquering one. By, by Jesus, who conquered Satan, sin, and death at the cross. And that with everything in your life and everything in human history, that we can actually bow and prostrate ourselves. Look at the posture of the people here. It's, okay, the answer's not going to be in here. I have to go external. I have to look and say, Jesus, you are the one who holds this whole thing. There's all kinds of religions. There's all kinds of different ideas out there. There's all kinds of different desires in my own heart. But Jesus, you are the one who can hold the scroll. You are the only one worthy to tell history what it's about. And that you're actually the one who, who is going to make it all right and make it all good and judge sin in horrible ways and also in give life and newness and glory 
for all who trust you and for all who conquer and all who hold fast to you and have the patience and endurance that are in Jesus. Not just endurance by itself, but in Jesus, the one who endured, the one who conquered, the one who suffered. That God came down in the flesh to win this. And that he is the worthy one. And somehow, even there's just like that little squeak of hope and faith in all the stuff that's going on in your life, to just do that. It isn't even so much a doing, it's just a receiving, it's a prostration before Jesus. It's a, I'm broken, I don't know what to do, I don't, I don't have the answers. Help me, you are the worthy one. You have conquered in whatever mess I'm going through, the mess of history. You are the one, Jesus, I look to you, I trust, trust you, you have conquered. And so that's our hope. That's our hope. The last thing I would say is, at the end of Romans 8, Paul is encouraging his people. And he's reminding them that, hey, in tribulation, in persecution, in suffering, in sword, in all of those things, Jesus loves you. The worthy one loves you. Inside, in it, in all of that stuff right now in your life, Jesus loves you. So that's how you can endure. You can keep going. He is one, and the one who is one, the one who is worthy, absolutely loves you. So that's what we're going to celebrate with communion, the proof of that.